How did you learn to be a father? My dad, um, he took us everywhere and did everything with us. He was always uh, an example for me, and so I just, I just wanted, wanted to be like him. He's a wounded warrior, uh, lost, lost both of his legs in, in Vietnam. I used to walk with a limp because of my dad. There was no reason for me to limp. I patterned myself that much after how my father was because my dad was larger than life to me. He was never afraid to tell me that he loved me. That was something that really, uh, really impacted me and something that I wanted to make sure that I carried on uh, when I became a father. If you didn't learn it from your own dad, how did you learn to be a dad? Because I was a, a son who needed a father. And it, it was just a matter of in my head, filling in those numerous blanks that were there. I need to be present. I need to listen. I need to value what my son says. All of those things I start to check down on my sheet as far as what I wish was there for me and how then I translate that to him. I unfortunately didn't have a father. I grew up an orphan, so I learned um, a lot of things on my own. I also knew that if I just do things with my heart, then I'll be fine. Uh, my dad left when I was three years old and I really didn't get an opportunity to really meet him and until I was 18 years old. I just know that I don't wanna be like my biological dad. I wanna be there. And can you be a great dad without having had a great dad yourself? I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. I think I'm proof that you don't have to have a good dad to be a good dad because my dad was not a good listener. I never felt like he was someone that I could talk to and tell him how I felt. He saw emotion as a weakness, where I see it as a strength. The greatest love I've ever experienced is being a parent. And I remember my wife giving birth to him and looking at him and just crying because it was like, this is my son. My mom died. But we still have a bond, and me and my dad have a bond. The bond with dad, it's one of the things that keeps us together. My dad would not have liked it if I had a mohawk. I remember when I was 17, I came home with an earring, and he was furious, and he did not want me in the house. I've always told him that no matter where we go, if you want to go out, you tell me you want to go, and you can always go wherever I go. So. He's not going to be left in the car because it's too hard. What's one thing you love about your dad? He takes me everywhere he goes. So sometimes I put glasses on just because he didn't want to wear his his uh, his, his his eyeglasses, and uh, that's why he wears them now. You can't you can't take them off, isn't that right? Can't take them off. Who wears who wears those glasses? Who else? That's right. My parents were kind of like I. I could have had a 290-yard rushing game and had four sacks and we won the state title and it's like good game. <laughs> Trash duty tomorrow. <laughs> Although I do raise them with those type of values. Uh, you're never as good as you think you are. You're never as bad as you think you are. You're somewhere right in the middle. But I make sure that 
they know how much I love them and how much I'm proud of them. How do you know your dad loves you? A lot of hugging, kissing, I love you stuff. <laughs> yeah. I love you stuff. That's pretty good. You're going to pretend that you are a dad. Um, son, hold my hand. Stay next to me until we can cross. What if I don't listen? You will listen. <laughs> and what have you learned from dad? To be nice to people and be kind. And what kind of dad do you want to be? This kind. How do you know your dad loves you? He says it 24-7. <laughs> and he's not afraid to show it either. And what do you love most about dad? He's like my best friend. Tell me what you love most about daddy. I love his heart. I think you don't have to have a good dad to be a good dad. And it really doesn't matter what surroundings you're in to become a good dad. You know, being a dad doesn't have anything to do with blood. It's not biological. It's about a choice that you make to, to love your children. Say thank you. Thank you. I want to welcome you. Uh, if you're if you're new, thanks for being here. Happy Father's Day, as I already told you. Uh, what a blessing it is to to gather and, and talk about dads. And today's service is is uh, I'm trying something a little specific, and I'm really happy with the turnouts from the two previous services already. But I'm just going to talk to guys today. Uh, now, normally, from a speaking perspective, you're supposed to kind of stay somewhere in the middle. You can lean a little bit towards the audience that the day celebrates, but. I've learned over the years that women are way too intuitive to not pick up the stuff that applies to their lives and the stuff that applies to who they are. And so uh, today I'm just going to talk with guys, and uh, it's gone really, really well. I think it's, it's kind of uh, freed up a little bit. So guys in the room, whether you're a dad or not, uh, you, do, you do or did have a dad, and so today does apply to you. And uh, I think it's just going to be a, a blessing. So uh, we're closing today a series called Messy and Boy, you couldn't pick a better word for fatherhood, could you, than messy. Uh, it's, it's kind of one of those things that, uh, that you just got to dive into and really realize that you're a part of because it, it, when it happens to you, I mean, it, it happens to all of you, uh, this fatherhood thing. And so I found two quotes that I really liked, one for older dads, uh, I'm sorry, one for yeah, younger dads and older dads. So we'll put up the younger dad first. If you're a new dad in the room, I like this John Stewart quote, it says, Fatherhood is great because you can ruin someone from scratch. So, <laughs> you don't just have to ruin someone's lives. You can ruin them right from the beginning. So I, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, so young dads, isn't that true? We're, it's just such a heavy burden, such a heavy responsibility to, to, to raise a person. And uh, it, it's really special when it's done well. And, of course, it's, it's really damaging when it's not. Uh, older dads in the room, because we still need all those older dads in the room. I like this quote. From Jerry Seinfeld, it says, you can tell what was the best year of your father's life because they seem to freeze that clothing style and write it out. <laughs> like, 1984 was good for me. So was this jacket. It's just like, 
It's just, it's awesome. So I, I, we need those older dads. We need those people in our lives. As a matter of fact, um, I have a, uh, of course, biological dad, and then I have uh, spiritual dads. And everyone in this room had a biological dad, and you'll also have spiritual dads, people in your life that invest in you like your father did. And today we're talking about all those, you know, uh, your dad and your spiritual dads and men in general and the men that you pour into and the men that pour into you. But wherever you come from, we have a father above who wants us to know how much he loves us and I believe uses his scripture, his stories, and his spirit to remind us of that. So what I want to do is I want to start off with what I have learned over the years from my physical and spiritual dads and the things that I probably appreciate most about, about, about the, the men in my life that always seems to bring some, some uh, purpose to who I am is they cause me to think. I think a great dad should cause you to think, cause you to consider. They should, you, you make this plan, you make this decision, you go, this is what I'm going to do. And a great dad should go, really? Have you ever considered? And then they, they kind of give you some incomplete wisdom because as men ourselves, we want to finish the, the you know, the, we, we want to finish the story. Don't give me the whole story, but give me a majority of the story so I can finish the rest. But great dads cause us to consider. They cause us to take a step back and go, oh, now, whether it's your actual dad or spiritual dad, oftentimes they'll do it uh, in hard situations, or some of them will do it in even easy everyday situations, causing you to slow down and really look at uh, uh, what is before you and make sure you don't pass it up. Recently, I was with someone that had a brand new baby, and uh, I don't have any brand new babies. My youngest is 13, and just came out of me as like my first spiritual dad, almost mature thing I think I ever said, and I was like, just remember, just know this. This will pass, and she won't stay this young for long. And he was like 21, right? And he's like, okay, I'll do that. And I thought, man, I'm old. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, did I just say that? This too will pass, son. You know, I was like, oh. But that is, that is what they do. They cause you to consider. So uh, for you today, I want to give you four things that I think great dads cause us to consider. Great dads cause us to consider. The first one is this. A great father should cause us to consider, and I think this is right at the very top, what may happen if I as a man were to embrace my own inadequacies. See, I look around as a man, and I do what every other man does. I compare. I compare how I'm doing, what I should be doing, what they're doing, what he's doing. What I'm, I, that's what men do. Men are competitive, and they compare, and they look at other men's lives, and then they kind of decide whether or not they're measuring up and whether or not it's, it's going well. And oftentimes especially to my parenting, I realize and recognize that in many of my areas, I'm inadequate. I don't think that I'm that good at parenting, actually. I don't think that I'm, that I'm, I'm not a natural. It's not my first and foremost gift uh, is parenting. And I admit that because today we're admitting our inadequacies. Now, it doesn't mean that I can't parent or that I, there's no good parts of me parenting, but it means, to be honest, with my children, especially my older children, that I was a very young dad, and I made a lot of very young dad mistakes. A lot. I, they, were, they were drug along to everywhere I went and part of my ministry career, and, and they still bring it up every once in a while just to kind of sober me up when a bunch of people in the room say, man, Danny, you're awesome. They're like, not during the early years he wasn't. And I'm like, what? You just said that? Just... And they just walk out of the room. It, 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 but it's true. But it's true. I want to be someone who can admit my inadequacies, and I want to be someone who doesn't measure other people and then determine my own value based on that. 
I heard a wonderful illustration. A man said that uh, he was introducing uh, he was introducing someone in his church to a woman in the church that was a spiritual matriarch. She said this woman's never been, he said this woman's never been married. She sits in the back. She prays for hours on end. She goes on these long spiritual retreats. I mean, it's just unbelievable who she is. You got to meet her. And he drug up a person to meet her and he said, so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And she is the most spiritual person I know. And the spiritual person looked at him and said, shut up. <laughs> he said, What? Of course, the new person's like, oh, my. She said, why would you say that? And he said, well, because you, you pray all the time, and you, we, I've done Bible study with you, and you know so much about Scripture, and, and you've never been married. Like, your whole life's been dedicated to the Lord. And she's like, that's not true. I have all kinds of broken areas. And if one thing I can give you that is wisdom, young man, and then she said these words. I wrote it down. She said, we need to be aware that too often we compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about other people. So too often when it comes to fatherhood, we compare what we know about ourselves. I failed here, I failed here, I messed up here, I messed up here. And then we look at other people's lives and what we don't know about them are their failures, but we can see on the outside what they're doing well. And then we compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about them. So in this case, this man said, I've never been on a spiritual retreat. I am married and it's not that good of a marriage. I can't pray for more than 15 minutes. What I know about me compared to what I don't really know but think I know about you means that I'm inadequate and you're more spiritual. We do this all the time as people, especially as dads. All the time. Oh, he's coaching how many sports teams this year? Oh, my gosh. I need to coach that. Is that what good's that? Three sports teams? Okay. And you make how much money? And your kid lives where? And they go to hut? And oh, you have brand new? Oh, it, we just compare, compare, compare. And then we begin to feel inadequate. But we don't actually embrace the inadequacies because we're constantly comparing to the men in our lives trying to measure up. All throughout God's word, spiritual men have wrestled with this. And yet all throughout their lives, spiritual men would confess eventually that they were inadequate and in great need. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.5 writes, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. You have to realize something about Paul at the time. I don't think a lot of people allow this to soak in, but Paul was literally writing real scripture real time. This was a man who was blinded by God, names changed by God, and who was writing letters that were becoming scripture when they went in the post. Can you imagine if I was like, hey guys, I wrote this letter and it's going to be in the Bible next week. Pretty excited about it overall. Whole new book. Book of Danny, right? It's just unbelievable. It'd be crazy. The church would be huge and everybody would think I was awesome. And that's exactly what was happening for Paul. And so what does Paul do? He starts things off by letting people know that, hey, it's God who works in me and I am not sufficient it is God who is sufficient. I am insufficient. I am inadequate without him. A great father should cause us to consider and embrace our inadequacies all the while still being great. If I was honest, I think I'm still learning to be okay not being okay. And that's okay. But I'm not okay not being okay very often. I'm not okay saying I'm insufficient but by not saying I'm insufficient, I'm saying I am sufficient and God isn't needed. Great dads, don't do that. Next, a great father should cause us to consider what may happen if I was honest, ready guys, about what's hidden away inside me. Oh, hidden away inside you. 
That's the stuff you don't talk about, not the hidden stuff you've talked about that you use to pretend that you're mature, by the way, gentlemen. We all know that. Like, well, I don't tell a lot of people this story back in the day. You've told everybody you don't tell a lot of people this story. That's literally the preface to you telling the story that you've always told. I, I, can't, I know this because I'm a professional storyteller, and I know that that line is supposed to set up that you're about to hear something special. I don't do this very often, except for the last 10 weeks in front of 600 people. Other than that, I don't hardly do it. Except for last year when I did it, one time, led by the Spirit. It's not, stop it. I'm talking about real stuff. Real stuff hidden away. Okay, stuff inside you that that happened to you. Stuff inside you that marked you. Stuff inside you that created you to be who you are. We as guys have that stuff. And unlike most of the ladies in the room, we don't go and share that with people. I often wonder what my wife talks about for two hours on a Tuesday at 3 o'clock with her girlfriends. I think it's this stuff. I'm guessing. I just think, think she sits and talks about her hidden stuff. I could be wrong. All the ladies in the room are like, you're crazy. I'm like, I, I think you're wrong. I think you ladies pretend not to talk about real stuff and then go talk about real stuff and then come back and act like us. That's what I think happens. But I'm only 39 and I don't know everything. But I know some stuff. And I know that what guys need to do is realize they hide things. Here's what guys need to realize as well. God knows all your hidden things. Luke 8, 17 says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. God knows all your stuff. He knows all my stuff. And he loves you anyways, and he wants to be in relationship with you. But it's really hard to be in relationship with somebody when you have the vast majority of that relationship built on secrets. If you don't have a relationship with God where you can expose your stuff and still feel loved by him, then chances are you probably don't have a relationship with anyone else that you can share your stuff with and feel loved by them. I think we as guys, I think we avoid this whole idea of sharing our stuff because of this one single word that I preach all the time that I probably should slow down on, and I think maybe I will from now on, and that's the word transformation. See, guys don't transform well. Guys like the same stuff, the same time, same place, same rhythm. Not all guys, but a lot of guys. Ladies, at least the ones in my life, transform every 15 minutes. <laughs> I live with three women, ranging from 13 to 39. There's so much transformation in my house that, that I half the time don't even realize who I live with. It's amazing how different they can look and how different they do look. I think what happens is we get in church and some of this culture stuff kicks in and I start talking about transformation and the ladies in the room are like, yes, I need to change. I need to change who I am and this sweater and I need to become a new person and a new outfit and I need to become new before the Lord. And they just, they get it, they get it. And guys are like, ah, that didn't change what? I had the same exact DeWalt drill for 32 years and it works just fine. Why do I got to transform into anything else? I fall into this rhythm. These are my preaching jeans that my wife laughs about. These particular jeans have great pockets for me to put my hands in, keep my shoulders back, and don't let me think about it. I have another set of jeans that have loose pockets, and my hands slip down, and it causes me to crouch, and I hate wearing them when I preach. I hate it. People are like, you wear the same jeans every week, every day, every time, because I'm here for the Holy Spirit, not to impress you with my style. Mm. Mm. See that? Unbelievable, isn't it? Unbelievable. I don't need to change. Transform. <laughs> uh, I do wash them, but not very often. I don't want to. I don't want to wash off any of the extra preaching glitter that might fall off while I'm up here. 
Okay, we have gone astray. <laughs> guys don't like to change, and so I think oftentimes guys struggle to transform. It, it causes them to feel like, I know me and I know the few guys that I do life with, it causes oftentimes transformation means I have to take off what I'm wearing, be exposed, vulnerable, naked, if you will, and put on something new that I don't know if it will fit as well or get me where I've, I need to go. And I think so many times that walk, that path between old self and new self is thwarted by, by our own desire to not feel inadequate and, to, and because of our hidden things that might be exposed. And so instead, we maintain our habits, we maintain our, our rhythms because exposed nakedness is worse to most men than covering rags. It would be better to just sit in rags than to be exposed with my stuff and what's hidden and then put on something more glorious that I'm uncomfortable with. And so guys walk around so often living the same lifestyle and really truly being the same person they were. I used to say this all the time that you should really evaluate if you're following Jesus because everybody was transforming that lived with Jesus. If you were the same caliber of spiritual person this year that you were last year, you should really sit and consider whether or not you're where you're supposed to be. Because the men and the women that followed Christ changed every single day. Now, it doesn't mean they changed and were successful. Some of them changed through suffering. Many of them changed through seasons where they didn't understand what was happening. But nobody stayed the same. God calls us to transform, and he calls us to do it by exposing that what we are now is not what we're supposed to be. And I believe great fathers cause us to consider doing that transformation transformation through confession of that hiddenness. Third, a great father should cause us to consider what may happen if I could see the fact that all men are unfinished works. Unfinished means incomplete, imperfect, in process, in progress, or under construction. I think guys are pretty good at seeing this, but not in other guys and certainly not in themselves. I get guys show up at my house and they're like, huh, haven't finished that yet. I'm like, man, how'd you even see that? It was way over there. Yeah, you need to get started on that project before the rain hits. Oh, yeah, you're right. No one's, no one's confused when a project is in process. And yet as spiritual men, as, as people who are being developed by God according to Scripture, so very often we decide that God has already completed us and we've fallen short. And actually, we're going backwards from the completed picture that he told us that we were, that we believed back when we first got married or first went to camp or first came to Christ. And since then, my life's really fallen backwards, and we use words like backslidden. No. Every man in this room is in process. Every person in this room is in process. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ, who was both a carpenter and God, when he left, the three men that he spent most of his spiritual pouring out into with were unfinished. They were unfinished, radically unfinished. And Jesus was not only God, he was a carpenter. He could build a soul and a table. And yet he leaves 11 guys that don't know what to do when he's resurrected. That he's been telling them for three years is going to happen. I'm going to be resurrected. Yep, we got it. Put the house here. Square it up. Okay, build the foundation. Do the thing. Yep, got it. When I leave, there'll be some lumber that shows up. Build the house right here. Going to call it the church. Peter, you go first. Yeah, I got it. All right, I'm leaving. We got it. I'm going. We got it. Cornerstone, build it. Kingdom will fall. Kingdom of heaven move forward. Gates of hell. Got it. Got it. Got it. He dies. They're like, what are we gonna do next? <laughs> what are we gonna do now? 
He's gone. Matter of fact, it's only the women that show up to the tomb and wait for something to happen. Do you know why? Because they're present with their emotions. They're present with their grief. They're there. They're hurting. They're crying. And boom, suddenly they show up and the tomb's empty. What do they do? They go get the guys. And I love what happens. They get Peter and they get John. And John, we know from our study earlier, is a disciple who never names himself because he's that humble. Right? You got Peter, who's the rock, who is the one who should know. And you've got John, who never names himself. That's who Mary goes and gets. Jesus is risen. The tomb is empty. What are you talking about? Jesus is risen. A foundation has been built. There's a cornerstone. It's time to build a church. Build a church? What do we know about building a church? Oh, my gosh. You spent three years with him. I know, but I don't think he meant this. Come on and come and see. Then the guys kick in. This is awesome. Verse 3, chapter 20 of John. So Peter went out with, other, with the other disciple. That's John. That's how John describes himself. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And then John adds this. You take it for what you want, but I know me if I'm another guy. And this is what he said. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just a quick foot race note that John's a little faster than old chubby Peter. Like, let's go see Jesus. Yeah, let's go see Jesus. Let's go see Jesus. Let's go see Jesus. All of a sudden, you got two guys. You never noticed that, did you? Welcome to church, people. Welcome to church. That's because that's what guys do. They compare 24-7. They're always compared, even going to see the resurrected Savior. Apparently, they're foot racing. And John is humble about it. And then the other disciple... Right? Can you imagine Peter reading that when he's going over the proofread? And then the other disciple, John, come on, man. I'm, Peter, I'm just telling you, this is a temple, man. You got to get out, a little less fish. I'm just telling you. It's going in there. Millennium, millennial, forever Christians are going to be reading about this, Peter. You got to lose a little weight. <laughs> Verse 5. And stooping to look in, the first disciple, because he made it there first, which he'll clarify, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Cyber Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face of cloth, the face cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, look at this, who reached the tomb first. <laughs> we already know you're there, John. We know, bro. We know. Anybody have these friends? They just always bring it up over and over and over. Remember that time that we had a foot race and you like, you lost so bad? Remember that time? Yeah, we remember. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John's a truth teller. So he lets them know, hey, I believed. And then he puts the truth in again. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Like, well, he's risen. Let's go. What, what should happen? What should be the correct response, you may say? Oh, I know. Let's look at the women. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Because Jesus' body is gone. The prophecies have come true. And she's present. She's there. She's engaged. And so it's Mary that while she's weeping, who stoops to look inside the tomb that saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, while John and Peter probably tried for a second time to race themselves back to their house. And I guarantee Peter lost again. This is what guys do. This is what they do. Guys challenge, guys compare, and guys don't realize that they are unfinished. Jesus left these men, discipled these men, and this is how they responded, because they are unfinished. We serve a God who is finishing us. 
We serve a God who is teaching us. We serve a God who is pouring into us. And we need to let him finish us. Don't you think if Jesus left them that way, that he does understand why you are the way you are, men? Don't you think he knows the process that you need to go through to be the best version of you? Throughout his life, Jesus not only responded, but sought after unfinished people. They're his thing. Like, he's into unfinished people. Like, if, if people were fine bottles of wine, he'd be like, I'll take that one. The unfinished year, that one's mine. That's what he wants to be in. That's the kind of relationship that he wants to have. Hebrews 12, 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, look at it, or finisher of our faith. He is the one who brings to completion what is undone. But you've got to start by realizing how undone you really are. Again, from week one, spirituality isn't about being finished and perfect. Spirituality is about trusting God in our unfinishedness. Lastly, a great father should cause us to consider what may happen if great fathers had need of the father. Only when we understand this can we live in the kind of relationship the Lord desires to have with us. Only can we teach other fathers to be great fathers when we proclaim that our own greatness, if you will, the stuff that's good about us, the stuff that's working in our lives comes from the father. Think about Paul again with Timothy. Timothy was his spiritual son. And Paul writes to Timothy all the time. And then he says in 1 Timothy 1 and 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, and then these three descriptive words, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He says to him, Paul, you know what people say about me. You know the things that are happening in my life. I know that you want to be like me, but allow me to introduce you to God the Father, the one who brings grace, mercy, and peace. He is the one that defines excellence. He is the one that leads the way. He is the one that uh, forgives. He is the one that walks us through our inadequacies. He is the one that walks us through our hiddenness. He is the one that, that, that allows us to be uh, uh, who we really are in his presence. It is him and him alone that finishes us. And he does it with grace, mercy, and peace. A great father should cause a young son, a, 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 another son, to consider that it is the father who makes him great. The Lord will finish what he completes, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He will bring what he has started to completion at the day of Christ. And do you know what these things all do? They cause you to transform into something. They cause you to transform out of being your own king and your own prince and your own man of purpose into what the Bible calls a child of God, or for our sake, men, a son. And the thing about sons, sons want to be loved how they were, how they are, and how they will be. And that's exactly what God is offering you today. A love how you were, he was there, he knows. The inadequacies, the hidden secrets. How you are, the insufficiencies that exist still today. And how you will be. The story that you're hoping to write 
about your life. And he wants to bring it to completion. But you're going to have to see. You're going to have to see that for you to see God as the father he wants you to see him as, you're going to have to see just how much you're going to need to look like him. It's fun, isn't it, to see a son with his dad. I get to meet a lot of dads that come to church to visit because they're, maybe their adult children go here. It's amazing sometimes to see how genetics work. And you'll meet a, a dad who's just an older version of the son I've known for five years. It's just incredible. They just look so much alike or talk alike. or, or There's so much about them that is the same, even if they're distant, even if they're relationally distant. They just move and function in the same way. That's how fatherhood, when it's, how it's supposed to be, works. Well, spiritual fatherhood, my friends, is no different. And spiritually speaking, when we become like Jesus, we become loving and compassionate and gentle. We become uh, full of grace, mercy, and peace like him. We move like him. We pray like him. We, we talk like him. But we also become scarred like him. We also suffer like him when we don't take advantage or make ourselves the center. We also pay a cost like him. Everything about our lives as we become more like Christ becomes like him. We as sons who are loved by him, how we are, how we were, and how we will be, become transformed beings into Christ's likeness on this planet because we look like our father. This is what it means to be chosen by him is to recognize the very things in your life that keep you from relationship with God are the very things in your life that he came here to love you through. Your brokenness, your stuff. He experienced all the brokenness and all the stuff that you do. He knows about it. You're his son. He gets it. He watches you move and, and pretend and, and strive. And he says, oh, I know what that was like. I, I was challenged by some of those same things. And look what I did. And, and look how it happened. And suddenly we become in this rhythm with our God where we get to just be sons. And just be loved. I read an illustration this week about a little boy who wanted a puppy. I like puppies, and I was a little boy. So it tied to my life perfectly. <laughs> this little boy wanted a puppy. He ran home to his mom. He said, Mom, I saw a puppy down at, the, down at the pet store. have a whole bunch of them. I want a puppy. And she said, I don't know about that. I don't think you'll take care of the puppy. He said, I promise you. I'll give you three months of allowance for the cost. And uh, I promise you, I'll take care of the puppy. I will, I will watch the puppy. I will care for the puppy. The puppy and I will be, will be like family. She could see that it was pretty serious, this desire for a puppy in this young boy's eyes. And so she, she said, okay, and they shook on it. And he ran down to the, the store. Filled with excitement, the little boy ran to the pet shop to buy his new puppy. After determining that the boy had enough money, the pet shop owner brought him to the window to choose his puppy. After a few moments, the young boy said, um, I'll take the little one in the corner. Oh, no, said the shop owner. Not that one. He's crippled. Notice how he just sits there. Something is wrong with one of his legs, so he can't run and play like the rest of the puppies. Choose another one. Without saying a word, the boy looked up at the shop owner, reached down, lifted his pant leg to expose a permanent chrome leg brace. No, he said, I think I'll take the puppy in the corner. It turned out that what disqualified the puppy from being chosen by others is what most qualified him to be chosen by the little boy. It's amazing how few of us believe in the unqualified grace of God. We think that we come to this church and that God loves us as long as we are clean, whole, and fixed. But it turns out that what disqualifies you and me 
what disqualifies all of us from some people's spirituality, the mess of our lives and our crippledness is what most qualifies us to be chosen by our Father God. It's what most looks like what he went through. If men could decide to allow these parts of their stories to be proclaimed, they could change the lives of every person they touch. Men who could bravely face their own inadequacies, men who would be fully honest about what they struggled with and were afraid of, men who could proclaim, I am in great need of the Father's love and guidance. In this way, if we as men could sit with our Father God, we could sit upon his lap and get to be inadequate. We could get to be honest. We could get to be unfinished little boys held by him who just loves us as we are. And I think that's what great fathers, the Father, would like us to consider for today. If we can find this place of wonder, guys, this is the best part, second best part. If we could find this place of wonder, then perhaps somewhere inside our stories, we too can be great fathers of great men fathered by God. And then from that place, we could explore this world. We could love the unlovable. We could see faces differently if we were willing to be sons, to be boys, if you will, loved as we were, as we are, and as we will be. But only if we're willing to engage in the Father's love that he's offering so freely to you today. Lord, as we take just a moment to ponder this reality, I ask that in this room right now, you would just, you would just comfort those who need it. You would shore up those who are, who are hurting. You would come alongside those who are uh, convinced that there is just no hope beyond today's struggles. I ask, Lord, that for every man and woman in this room, that you would just challenge them with that word, if. That they would come to you knowing there is a large, vast world of relationship that you want to expose yourself through that could help complete them and bring them to full transformation and healing. Lord, I thank you that you are in the process of working with the unfinished, of working with the hidden, of working with the exposed God, of working with the inadequate. Please take what we're offering. Please receive our lives. Please allow us to be great fathers to great children serving a great God. You can keep your head when all about you losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for the doubting too, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, 
Don't give way to hating. If you can dream, but not make dreams your master. If you can think, but not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph hmm, and disaster, and you just treat these two imposters just the same, or bear to hear the truth that you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings, huh? And risk it in one turn of pitch and toss and lose. Start again at your beginnings. Never breathe the word about your loss. If you can force your heart and your nerve and your sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there's nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distant run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, which is more, you're gonna be a man, my son.